Peace and blessings. This is Muslims for Peace podcast. You have tuned into Muslims for Peace podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Oh, come on, guys. We can do better than that. Assalamu alaikum. That's more like it. <laughs> Mashallah. Um, I'm honored to be here with all of you. Um, this is a, a topic, I think, um, as someone has already mentioned, we need to include in all of our discussions, um, not just during Women's History Month or during particular events, um, but really looking at how we integrate discussion of, of women, of women's rights, of human rights, um, into all of our conversations. Um, so I want to thank you for, for bringing me here today and giving me the opportunity to offer um, some of my perspective and experiences, and I hope it is of benefit to you all. When I was a little girl, um, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, um, in Marcus Garvey Projects, um, one of seven children. Um, my mother was a single mother for most of my life, um, but she would still tell me stories. And when I was a little girl, she shared with me a story about a woman she greatly admired. She said this woman was an incredible, inspiring example of faith, of intellect, of commitment, of strength, and of perseverance. She owned her own businesses. She was a well-respected entrepreneur. Um, and the gentleman that she chose to be her husband was also chosen by God. And I thought, what an incredible woman. We all know who this woman was. What was her name? May Allah be pleased with her. And she was such an incredible woman that during a time where polygamy was the norm, she was his only wife. And sometimes I, I think we kind of throw that out there that it was just an anomaly, but I think it really speaks to how special, how unique, um, how loved she was by Prophet Muhammad. Um, peace and blessings of God be upon him. And so when we think about her, I wonder where would be her place in our American Muslim society today. A woman who was confident, who was self-assured, um, who was wealthy, who was educated, um, who chose her mate, right? Where would she be today? Would she be relegated to just conversations that happen once a year? Would this woman who gave so much to our understanding and to the spread of Islam, would she be relegated to a room never to be seen. So I think we have to ask ourselves, of all of the women that we celebrate who were the righteous companions of the Prophet, a woman who believed in him when he said no one else believed in his message, right? She said, no, this is a gift, this is a divine revelation, right? Without question, she knew that he was special. This is why she chose him, right? She knew that he was someone that we should all pay attention to, that we should all understand to be a mercy to all mankind. And when she saw him in such a distraught state, right, it was her confidence, it was her belief in his uniqueness and his message that calmed him. So do we have leadership that represents the confidence and the calm and the commitment of this woman represented in our masjid boards, in our Islamic institutions, in our organizations. Is that presence absent? And if it is, we need to ask ourselves why. 
I was reading about how people describe um, Khadija, may Allah be pleased with her. And I, it came on this interesting description of, you know, the night in which um, there was revelation to the Prophet Muhammad and he comes home. And this, this description kind of stood out to me because I think it says something about the tension between how we revere these women in our history, but at the same time, our lenses and our perspectives on their value and their contribution reflects not the history, but reflects patriarchy. It reflects privilege. And so this question said, how many women in history would have that deep level of understanding for their husband's needs and practice restraint and speech and action if confronted with similar behavior from their husbands? The typical wife would instead complain of neglect Yet Khadija never gave him a hard time for his long periods of absence, for she appreciated and respected his spiritual needs to ponder, reflect, and unite his heart with the Creator. Now, on the face of it, there's nothing wrong with this. Would you agree? But there is. And saying, well, a typical woman, well, who is that, would feel neglected, that she would give him a hard time for his long absence, Right? So there's an undercurrent of almost a disparaging of who ordinary women are. We know Khadija was special, that she was beloved by God. But to say that typical wife, a typical woman would not understand these spiritual needs, I think is a mistake and something that we need to question. So what place, what space would this woman have in today's communities? Would she be elevated or would she be tokenized? Would she be respected? or tolerated as long as she didn't raise concerns about problematic gender dynamics? Would she be viewed as an exceptional exception to the unspoken rule, which said that women should just wield power you know, very quietly? But when they do wield power, this represents a threat to the superiority of men. Right? So if we have Khadijas who are not only in our community, but sitting in this audience today, do they feel that they are as respected as this woman? So if women speak up about injustices within the community, do they risk being perceived as disloyal, as airing the dirty laundry, or often as a puppet of white feminists who want to hate Islam and disparage our beliefs? So if, if we remain silent right, about the treatment with within the community. And, and this, I think, is, is somewhat of a conundrum for us, that we are very concerned about how non-Muslims, about how outsiders, so to speak, uh, uh, view and perceive women, that often the conversation centers on what we wear and not what we believe, right? Or who determines what we are allowed to say. But we should be equally as concerned about the treatment within the Muslim community, because it puts Muslim women in a bind. Right? That we don't want to sort of betray the community. We don't want to betray Muslim men. We don't want to reinforce this idea that Muslim men are oppressive, that they're intolerant. But when we speak up about things internally that cause concern, that challenge us, that shows the ways in which we are still struggling, right? those women are told to be quiet. Right? They're told, we are told, that this is not the time or the place because it would only become fodder for Islamophobes. We are told that we have to deal with the hate that we are experiencing from outside of the community and everything else, you know, 
let's just stay quiet about that because it's going to be counterproductive. I think this is a mistake. I know that this is a mistake. We have to do both. Because if we remain silent, others are going to perceive us as complicit, as stereotypically Muslim women who cannot speak up on their own behalf. So what is the price of silence? Audre Lorde is a black woman activist, and she says, in the cause of silence, each of us draws the face of her own fear, fear of contempt or censure or some judgment or recognition of challenge or of annihilation. But most of all, I think, we fear the visibility without which we cannot truly live. And that visibility, which makes us most vulnerable, is also that which is the source of our greatest strength. Because the machine will try to grind you into dust anyway, whether or not we speak. We can sit in our corners, mute forever, while our sisters and ourselves are wasted, while our children are distorted, while our earth is poisoned. We can sit in our safe corners, mute as bottles, and we will still be no less afraid. So why are we silent? In many of the descriptions of Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, she is described as intelligent, with a sharp wit, outspoken. She's curious. She's confident. Right? She is the one that even challenges our beloved prophet to clarify. Right? And she's like, I don't quite understand. Right? Some of us have daughters, we have sisters, right? We have friends who are like Aisha. Do we encourage their talent, right? Their wit, their intellect? Or do we tell them, well, you know, now you're just causing trouble. So behave yourself, right? How many Muslim women and girls are just taught to behave, right? Instead, that, that wit can challenge us, that intellect can tell us there's something that we need to be paying attention to. So if we don't encourage and nurture these qualities in our young girls and in our boys. My sons are 13 and 2 years old. One day I want them to look on the example of Aisha and of Khadija and of all of the women surrounding the prophet who will bolster his message. Right? A message without them we would not have in its form today. I want my sons to look at their example and say, I want to be like Khadija. I want to be like Aisha. But if we don't teach our sons that they also serve as examples, right? The, the images that come to mind when we think of a leader will not include them. There was a, a study done a few years ago, um, and it says the prompt was draw an effective leader, right? Is she a woman? But there were several researchers in organizational psychology who found that even unconscious assumptions about gender roles and gender norms prevent people, even women, from being able to see a leader in their own image. And some of this is because there is no representation. There aren't women who are in bona fide positions of leadership, not tokenized positions of leadership, but they actually will power and authority and have influence. That even women struggle with being able to identify themselves as potential leaders. So we have to ask ourselves, why is an effective leader only imagined to be a man? 
we have the prophetic example, and as a woman, I draw so much strength and inspiration from his example. But I also think about the women who surrounded him. Right? And this is, this is true today, that you can go into any mosque, right? and, and I'm generalizing, but I, I think by a nod of your head, tell me if I'm telling the truth. All of the work that takes place, especially around Ramadan, is a snapshot of what happens. Right? There's so much activity and there are people in the mosque every night, all day long. What would happen if all of the women said, you know what? This Ramadan, <laughs> I'm not about it. Right? What will happen to that iftar if women decide, can the men serve us some tea? Right? Who's going to pull together all the meals to make sure every? and this is something that I think is truly miraculous. It doesn't matter how many people come to iftar on any night in Ramadan, everyone gets fed. How, how, women, how do we do that? Well, maybe let's not say publicly because that'll be like trade secrets, <laughs> right? But the phenomenal thing is that happens like clockwork, right? The women just say, okay, this is what we need to do. There's no questions asked. There's always a woman who emerges as the leader who organizes everyone else. We have to make sure everyone gets fed, right? Every last woman, man, and child will be fed. No one will be hungry in Ramadan, right? And that kind of spirit and that kind of ethic continues. So women are critical to the, the, the leadership and to the organization and to the structure of every single community. But then when you ask how many women are on the board, Hmm, there we have a problem. So why aren't we using the knowledge and the intellect, the strategy of Muslim women who can organize an entire community for 30 days, right? And when we think about, especially when Ramadan comes in those months where we're praying Isha, and then we have like, we're like, should I go to sleep? Because I have to be up in two hours, right? So should I just stay up and read Quran? Or should I try to take a quick nap? But I don't want to drink coffee, right, during Sahur because then I can't. So all of this is happening within the space of a few short hours. But there are women who are like generals who are organizing their families and the entire community to make sure that we're fed right? and to make sure that we're comfortable and that when we're praying Tadari prayer, right, there's a, a focus and a centeredness that we can bring to that prayer because what is happening in the kitchen, right? What is happening with the small children? So why not bring that value and that ethic and that spirit to the, to the governance of a community? So when I, I think about the history of Islam and, and, and all of the leaders that we revere, right? There is an emotional intelligence, there is a compassion, there is a kindness that guides their actions, right? And, and, and stereotypically in today's world, those are like feminine characteristics, right? This ability to care and to nurture is something that's supposed to be inherently um, attributed just to women, but men also display this characteristic. But what we need to ask ourselves is why isn't it as valued in positions of leadership that women can bring to an entire community? So the trials and tribulations of prophets are well documented, and they're certainly instructive. But 
I often draw, I, I feel myself drawn to the stories and the challenges of the women who are not named, right? But again, those women who are, who are silently and firmly and, and with conviction pushing that message on. So as we, we think about uh, the challenges and the difficulties that are borne by those who are unnamed over the course of our history, I also think about the mothers of the prophets. And, and I'm particularly drawn to the story of Musa. And her story is kind of hidden, it's embedded in the larger narrative of Prophet Musa, but is equally as important. Because she represents this, this test of faith and of fortitude, and it's recounted in the Quran. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds Prophet Musa, and indeed we had already confirmed favor upon you another time when we inspired your mother with the message saying, throw the child into the chest and throw the chest into the river. The river will cast him up the bank and he will be taken up by one who is an enemy to me and an enemy to him. But I bestowed upon you love for me that you will be brought up under my eye. These short verses we learn of the sacrifice, the obedience, and the faith of this incredible woman. Again, she isn't made, but we know that she is amazing. But for just a minute, let's imagine the fear that may have gripped the heart of Amusa. Pharaoh had already begun waging war and genocide against the children of Israel, ordering the slaughter of all of the male children. But this nursing mother was instructed by God to throw her child into the water and into the arms of the oppressor who was already terrorizing their community. So imagine her fear, right? The, the paralysis and how fearful and scared she may have been. But this was what was conveyed to her, to follow this message. She may have been torn between her love for her baby and her deep and abiding faith in the mercy of the Most High. But she chose to do as she was instructed. She fulfilled God's command, and she was assured that her child would be protected. But this didn't stop her from crying out in grief and distress. We can surmise from the degree of her anguish from the following ayat. So we restored you to your mother, that she may cool her eyes and she should not grieve. My son is two years old, and when I was reflecting on this verse, I thought about the times in which I was a nursing mother. And for someone to say, well, you know, this is what I need you to do. Put your baby in a box, throw the box into some water, but he'll be all right. right? How many of us would be like, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> Not a problem. right? Even just physically, thinking about how much she may have ached, both emotionally and physically, from the separation between her and the baby. But as Muslims, we are instructed to give reference to the womb that bore you. Women are the vessels through which many of the most awe-inspiring miracles of God have been realized. Indeed, as stated above in the verse 37 of Surah Taha, before Prophet Musa embarks upon his mission to warn Pharaoh of his transgressions, our Lord reminds him of one of the first favors he bestowed upon him. And this favor is that of an inspired, faithful mother who heeded the message of her creator. This is a miracle. But women are assaulted by negative images and media portrayals on a daily basis. So when we're talking about revering the wounds that bore you, right, or just the importance of, of female leadership, the importance of being able to provide education and empowerment to young girls, do we remember this in our day-to-day -day lives? 
Because as a black Muslim woman, I stand at the intersection of three major fault lines, and that is of being black, of being Muslim, and of being a woman. So I, I feel these fault lines and then experience them in a very intimate and personal way. So the slight tremors, right, that we may experience because of the political climate or the social cultural climate, I feel them as a black Muslim woman. And there are times when I'm expected to defend or explain or justify or rationalize my love of Islam, my love of my culture, and basically my very existence. People have asked, well, you seem like an intelligent person. Why do you cover? Depending on the day, they might get a different response from me. If I'm feeling gracious, <laughs> you know, I'm, I may go into my own kind of personal experience and journey, and there are other days in which I give them a question in return. Is what do you know of my faith, truly? What do you know of me, aside from the things, uh, the stereotypes and the biases that you've internalized? People have asked, well, aren't you hot in all those clothes? And, and they say it with such like sympathy, right? Aren't you hot? Why do you, why do you wear so much? I'm like, well, aren't you hot? It's the summertime. I, I think that's just what we're all experiencing right now. Or they ask, well, don't you feel oppressed? Isn't Islam like inherently misogynistic and repressive? Or they ask, well, why do you talk about blackness, right? Why do you talk about who you are as a racialized being? You're a Muslim, sister, and this is all one ummah. But if God has already told us he's made us into nations and tribes, this is what we need to discuss. As the most diverse faith community in this country, don't we have something to teach everyone else about what this means and why it's important? So one of my favorite journalists is Melissa Harris Perry. And I was at a lecture she gave at the University of Pennsylvania, and she asked, how do you find upright in a crooked room? How do you find upright in a crooked room? And I find upright by drawing from the beauty of my faith tradition, by constantly seeking the mercy and the forgiveness of the Most High, by reflecting on the example of our beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who showed in both word and deed the utmost respect for women and advocated strongly on their behalf by being the best example I can be for other Muslim women who are also searching for meaning and purpose in that unique and special place. For some, like me, is at the center of race, religion, and gender. So I'm proud to be a black woman. I'm proud to be Muslim. And when I think about how I would have received support for all of those identities from the Prophet Muhammad, I'm looking to my community today to show support to women in the same way. So Audre Lorde that I quoted earlier is an activist and writer. She says, there are so many silences to be broken. What are the words you do not yet have? What do you need to say? What are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you sicken and die of them, still in silence? In our community, there's silence around anti-blackness, there's silence around sexism and misogyny and toxic masculinity around inequality, poverty, and mental illness. So we must continue to challenge and redefine our beliefs and implicit biases related to women in Islam and who we are able to be in this world, because this is what I believe 
our beloved prophet would have asked of us to do. It's the first person he went to when he was in distress and he was distraught and overcome. He went to his wife, Khadija, and she was able to provide for him the comfort and the confidence in that his message was something that the world needed to hear. So I pose these questions for us today. What are we afraid of? What do we need to say? What words do we not yet have? If we remain just strictly concerned about the perception of Muslim women from outside of a Muslim community, we're missing an opportunity for a conversation to challenge ourselves, to challenge the ways in which women are treated, so we can talk about the challenges and also the incredible resilience of the community at the same time. And I've become convinced that in order to withstand the onslaught of anti-Muslim bigotry, of racism, of religious discrimination, we have to be honest. We have to be vulnerable. We have to be empathic. And we have to bravely challenge all of those things that we know we experience within the American Muslim community. We have to be willing to do this work. There's, there's a term in, in, in family therapy called pseudo-mutuality. And if you've never heard it, I want you to write that down. Pseudo-mutuality. And it's this, this, this belief or this commitment to at least appearing as if everything is fine, right? There's nothing wrong in the family. Everyone gets along, right? We really don't need therapy, but someone suggested we do this, but I think we're just okay. So pseudo-mutuality is this trying to convince everyone that everything is okay, but simmering beneath the surface, right, there's a lot of turmoil, there's a lot of chaos that is trying um, desperately to come out, but people want to ignore. So we have to do away with the pseudo-mutuality in the Muslim community, right? If there are tensions, if there are problems, if there are challenges, let's be courageous enough to say they exist, they're real, now we have the faith tradition, we have the examples that give us everything we need to answer these questions. So as an African-American Muslim woman, an integral part of my story has been learning to celebrate the strength and the pride that I derive from both my racial and religious identities. And at the same time, I've had to learn how to combat the corrosive effect of these systems of oppression that impact me as a result of my race, religion, and gender. But based upon my experiences, of my faith, of my education, of my training, I've concluded that a necessary condition for this process of awareness, of healing, of confrontation of the things that we struggle with is space. A space to breathe, to be validated, to be challenged, and to be supported and loved. The space could be literal, it could be metaphorical, but it must be inclusive, nurturing, empathic, and forgiving. As believers were taught, make space for one another in your gatherings, right? And then Allah will make space for you. So this verse holds special meaning for me because it serves as a reminder that making space for others is a moral imperative. We make space for women. We make space for people who are marginalized. And Allah will be so favor on us. So instead of turning away in shame right, or denial, if we face front, if we find upright in a crooked room, Allah will give us everything we need in order to solve these problems. Lastly, I'll just say, we need to do better in making space and leadership for women. 
make space in the home for women because these should not just simply be sites of labor. Right? There are times in which my husband comes home at the end of the day and he's like, my day is done. I'm going to watch basketball. I'm going to eat dinner. Right? My day hasn't ended yet. It's my two-year-old that needs to be played with and to cuddled and to, you know, to be read to. It's a child of mine who has homework. It's another who's away who's like, mommy, I need some advice. My day has not ended yet. So if we're going to make space in our home for women, it's with shared responsibility. It's to recognize that she also wants to just have a moment. And when we are able to provide that kind of space for women, we're also opening up the potential for leadership to be unlocked in the community. Imagine all of the things that are done, and I just described using an example of Ramadan. Imagine if women had space right, to just contemplate, to reflect, to ponder on the other sort of goals and aspirations they also have. Imagine how that would benefit the entire community if the space is made for Muslim women. So I'm going to ask women, and I'm going to ask the men and the women and others, loved ones in their lives, ask the women that you know, what do you need to say? And what words do you not yet have? Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>